Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here today from all walks of life, representing nations. Thank you for bringing us all together under the head of one shepherd, for the good shepherd leading us. We're here, Lord, for commemorating your witnesses, the 1.5 million Armenians who are now joined with the cloud of witnesses in heaven and encouraging us to take our faith seriously as it truly costs. Be with us here and bless us by your holy presence. Amen. Amen. So if I was to show you a postcard of the Eiffel Tower, what comes to mind? Paris. Paris, France. The Colosseum. Rome. Rome, Italy. The Acropolis. Greece. Greece, of course. The Great Wall of China. 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 <laughs> For the Armenians, there are three images which depict us understanding ourselves as Armenians. There's Mount Ararat, the story of Noah. There's the, one of the ancient churches set in the Armenian landscape. And there's this cross, this unique cross, this particular Armenian cross that is carved into rock. We call it Khachkar. The mountain, the church, the cross. These are the images, symbols, even icons of the Armenian story, which begins in 301 AD. Well, the story is much longer than that, but the story of Armenian Christianity begins 301 AD when Armenia adopts Christianity as its official religion becoming the first nation to adopt Christianity as its official religion. However, this intimate association with the name of Christ, bearing the name of Christ, became costly in the early parts of the 20th century. There was a sort of nationalism that had taken over the Ottoman Turks an intense form of nationalism. At the same time, there was a new revival of sort of the Islam amongst the rest of the Muslims. So the government, the Turkish government at that time, was under pressure from, from one side, it was under pressure of the great powers of Europe. On the other hand, it was under pressure from the Russians. So while these put pressure on the Ottoman government, the government decided to once and for all settle with the Armenian question. And this question was really the Christian question amongst its empire. So under the cover of war, the Ottoman government orchestrated a plan to systematically annihilate the Armenian Christians. And while that diabolical net was cast, Thousands upon thousands of Greeks and Assyrians were caught along with the Armenians in this 
rage of madness that had taken over the Turks in trying to cleanse themselves, clean themselves of the Christians in the empire. When the war began, uh, Armenian men between the ages of 20 to 60 uh, were drafted into the, in, into the army, in the army uh, labor battalions. After a battle, after a loss in battle with Russia, the government takes advantage of, of this and blames the Armenians, disarms the men, and eventually begins a plan to execute them. So in effect, this settled, kind of, sort of set, uh, sets in the first stage of the genocide that was about to happen. They got rid of the able-bodied men who could possibly defend against the massacres that were about to take place. As a sort of a second stage, and very quickly after, on April 24, 1915, which marks the day we commemorate the Armenian Genocide, the intellectuals, the cultural leaders of the Armenian community in Constantinople, they were gathered, and eventually they were killed. Now, moving on towards, again, sort of a third stage of this massacre, what was left was the multitude of women, children, the elderly, and men without any arms, really. So these were given a notice of deportation that for their protection, they were to be deported to the interior of the uh, Ottoman Empire and away from the war zones. But in reality, what these deportations turned out to be were actually death marches into the Syrian desert. So the Tur young Turk government released from the jails and organized their convicted criminals as mobile death units, roughly about 40,000 of them. So as the death marches were going through the empire into the desert, these were the mobile units that would come and do unspeakable, unimaginable things upon the Armenian, vulnerable Armenians. It is estimated just in 1915 alone, 800,000 to 1 million Armenians were killed, starved to death, or died of disease. Again, the cruelty by which they applied this terror upon the Armenian people, I cannot really mention here. Uh, as a, some examples, they would gather the people and put them in the churches and set them on fire. If they were in the desert, they would put them in the caves and light them up, burn them alive. They crucified both men and women. Thousands of children were drowned in the Euphrates. In Gregory's Balakian memoirs, he's an Armenian priest who survives the genocide, he recounts this episode about a German sister and a German nurse. So they hear that the deportees are coming through their, that area, somewhere close by, and so they wanted to set out to assist them somehow, by food, by something they, they could assist them with. So they gather their servants, and they begin the journey through this mountainous region, roughly about six hours' journey, 
So when they arrive at the field, they begin to notice a trail of blood. And they, as more they further get in, they, they start to see the corpse, the corpses. So the further they journey in, the more maddening and frightful the scene becomes. Balakian writes, It was obvious that the killers, after murdering these deportees, had played with their corpses for hours, stripping them naked and cutting them to pieces. That which centuries of human history had never witnessed in its blackest of pages was carried out here in the name of Quran, in the name of Jihad. Balakian goes on. Seeing this effusion of blood all over the ground, the German nurse accompanying Sister Paula became so agitated that she jumped from her horse and ran to hug the decapitated body of a six-month-old girl. She kissed the baby and wailed, saying she wanted to take her, that she was her daughter. The German nurse had gone mad. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. These are the confident words of Psalm 23. Words of confidence and trust in God. How do we understand this in the face of a genocide? How are we to read instead of lying in green pastures, they fell dead on the sands of the Syrian desert? Instead of being led to still waters, their mouths were parched longing just for a drop of water. The question which wells up from the depths of our being when tragedy falls on us is always and inevitably, where are you, God? Where is God in the midst of great suffering? Where was God when the Armenians, the Greeks, the Assyrians were massacred? Where was God in the genocides in Africa, in Middle East, now unfortunately all over the place? Where is God when tragedy hits our own lives in a lesser scale? There are two ways of asking this question. One way to ask this question is from a position, there is no God. And these criminal acts this evil, these tragedies become a proof that there is no God. However, there is another way of asking this question. This is a question from asking this question comes from a place of great faith. When one asks this question, one acknowledges the very existence of God in the most real way and demands an answer, where are you? 
The question reveals the dependency of the person asking the question on God. It is indeed longing for God's presence, for God's mercy, for God's action. The book of Psalms is not a book which claims all is well in life. In fact, you cannot read the book of Psalms and understand it if you're succeeding in life. And by succeeding, I don't mean having experience of great joy. Those are profound and very meaningful. By succeeding means being able to keep an equilibrium, being able to keep the extremities of life at an arm's distance. Neither great pain nor great joy, but simply, as most of us settle with, Existing in that equilibrium. The Psalms are not for that. The Psalms, the book of Psalms is for the extremes of life. One third or more than a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Psalms about pain. Psalms about sorrow. About danger being present. And sometimes about forsakenness. The Psalms introduce us or bring us into the world, a world which we are disoriented. The Psalms give us the voice, gives us voice to that pain, pain of disorientation. And sometimes these words towards God are not kind words, are not easy words. In Psalm 44, this is a psalm written right after Israel is defeated in battle. The first eight verses of the psalm speak about or recall, they remember the deliverances of God, how God delivered Israel in many cases. They remember that in the first eight verses. Then the psalmist turns to God as you. Yet you have rejected us and abased us and have not gone out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe and our enemies have gone spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock amongst the people. These are not cordial words towards God. However, these are real words to God. This is truth-telling before God. This is an exercise of denying nothing while at the same time you do not deny the presence of God. You expose your entire self and the pain and sorrow before this very God, even if he feels like he abandoned. And in this case, the psalmist accuses them of infidelity to God. Therefore, when we read Psalm 23, 
We have to read the psalm in this context, in this context of the entire book of psalm. So the famous words of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, must be set right next to, as it is, the other words of Psalm, Psalm 22, the haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is these two that have to interpret one another. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is not simply the words of the psalmist. It's not even simply the words of Christ, words of Jesus. Sometimes these are the words of the, his sheep, his followers. Sometimes when we come to the valley of shadow of death, the valley is very deep and it's very dark. And we enter it as the forsaken. We enter it as sheep. 1.5 million people entered the valley of shadow of death as sheep being led to slaughter. Sometimes the valley offers no protection. There is no sense of God. There is no provision of God. Yet at the head of every death march, at the head of the sheep being led to slaughter, it is always the good shepherd. It is the good shepherd who first lays down his life for the sheep. This is the reason why they listen to him. This is the reason why they follow him, why they love him. And this is the reason sometimes why they, in turn, put down their lives for him. The fact that Jesus, the good shepherd himself, was the man of sorrows, was the one who lived the laments of the Psalms, was the forsaken one, validates this very human experience. Especially the experience of the cry, where are you, God? However, he is not only the one who lived the psalms, the pain of the psalms, the forsakenness of the laments of the psalms, but he is also the one who fulfills the hopes of the psalms. In the final analysis, the psalms are not just about lament and being disoriented in this world. It is ultimately about sorrow turning into praise. The Psalms are not about a permanent state of lament and disorientation, but rather becoming reoriented to God as people of God. For this reorientation to take place, it is not enough for the Good Shepherd to lay down his life. For this reorientation to take place, the good shepherd must rise again from the dead. He must do the same for the sheep that followed him if justice is to be done. For real justice to be done, the dried bones 
in the Syrian desert must come back to life. That will be the justice of God. I am not speaking of heaven. Many religions speak of heaven. Christian faith, although has a lot to say about heaven, the final hope is the resurrection of the body. This is where justice is done. That is the hope of the martyrs, whether they were died in China, Africa, Middle East, South America, wherever, stretching back 2,000 years and looking forward for however many, the hope of the martyrs, the same hope of mine and yours being in Christ is the resurrection of the body. So therefore, there is only one singular event within the history of man and one single event that will ever be powerful enough, big enough, that takes this sorrow, the pain, the madness of this life and metabolizes it into hope. That is only the resurrection of Christ. It is from this hope, from the position of this hope, that we know someday the small bones of the six-month-old Armenian girl lying in the Syrian desert someplace, along with the bones of the German nurse who lost her mind because of her, will rise again to embrace, again sharing kisses and hugging each other, but in a new creation, in the new era, in the new age of God, where there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more madness, nor evil, nor genocide. This, too, is following the good shepherd. So when we say hallelujah, Christ is risen, the Lord is risen indeed, hallelujah, these are not some religious, pious nonsense we spew out. Hallelujah is the war cry of the church. It is the cry against Evil. It is the cry against injustice while refusing to say anything else. But God reigns. Christ is king. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen. Amen. Give us strength. Give us heart. Give us hope. Give us light. This is the way it ends. All the Psalms eventually will end in praise. Amen. Amen.